The New Testament reading is from uh, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no lamp of sun, or of, uh, they need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from John chapter 5. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, called in Hebrew Bethsaha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. At once, the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So I just took a sip from my water bottle and ended up baptizing myself by accident, which we're doing signs of new creation and baptism is one. So I'm just going to wear it proudly and be a, a walking illustration of our text today. Would you pray with me? 
gracious God, we love you and we need you and we thank you that you call us to yourself and you reveal yourself to us through your word and through your spirit that most clearly you have made yourself known to this world in the person of Jesus, your word made flesh, who came and lived among us as a human being. And so we pray that as we sit with this episode of the story tonight, open your scriptures. God, would you enable us to behold the glory of Jesus, your only son? And as we behold his glory, would you remake us by your grace more and more into his likeness, that we would become more and more a people who love you, who love our neighbors in your name. So we ask for you to bless us now through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this Easter season, we are going through the Gospel of John and doing this series that we're calling um, Signs of Restoration. We're looking at these seven signs of new creation in the Gospel of John. And as Cindy got us started, uh, even on Easter Sunday, uh, telling us that, you know, the Gospel of John is structured around several different things, but one of them are these seven signs where we see Jesus enacting in the world God's new creation. And John wants us to see Jesus as this one in whom all God's promises for the world are coming true. John wants us to see Jesus as this son of God, this one in whom the glory of God is revealed to the world. And by the time you get to the end of the gospel, John will say, man, there's so many things I could have written down that would take volumes and volumes and volumes to tell all the story. But I tell these ones to you, we're blessed as we've seen, but I write them for those who would be blessed and believe even though they have not seen. And so we get to be the recipients of this gift of the gospel of John, and we get to see these portraits of Jesus that he's given to us. And as we do, we learn something about the heart of God. We see something about the kind of future God intends for the world and what our hope in Christ is. And so this third of seven signs is Jesus healing a paralytic by the pools of Bethesda. A few things that we want to think about here as we get into this story. But first, I just want to acknowledge that healing, physical healing, is one of the main signs that Jesus enacts in the world to bear witness to his identity as this Messiah, the Christ, the one in whom God's promises come true. If you remember back from the Gospel of Matthew when John the Baptist has been in prison and he's trying to figure out, did we get this right? I'm being locked up for this. Did we get it right? Are you actually the one? Are you the Messiah? Jesus' response to him, to the messenger anyway, is go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense in me. Jesus is piggybacking on the prophecies that came through Isaiah and Jeremiah and others that spoke of this day and the future for them when God would send this promised one, send this Messiah, and the kingdom of God would be restored on earth. And when that happened, when that day would come, 
it would be marked by healing. And when Jesus here in John's gospel heals this man at the pool of Bethesda, it's a sign that says, this is the one, I am he. And John wants us to recognize Jesus for who he is. So let's get into the scene here. Where are we? Bethesda, what is this? Um, a few clues are given to us in the text itself, right? That we've got this, this uh, pool here that's by the sheep gate that in Hebrew is called Beth Zatha. It goes by several names. Bethesda is the most well-known. It means house of mercy in Aramaic. But he describes it as having five porticos, which is a weird descriptor for a pool because a portico is like a long colonnaded uh, porch, not really porch, it's like what we call like a breezeway kind of, right? With like a roof, columns, and it's like a long outdoor corridor. Uh, and a pool that would have porticos around it would have one along each side of the pool. So imagine what would a five porticoed pool be? Is that like a pentagon? Because a normal pool would be a rectangle. Okay, so a normal pool, if it had porticos around it, would have four. And actually for the longest time, archeologists had never found such a pool. And so they assumed that John either had his facts mixed up or he was just making up a fictional place of the five porticoed pool. But in the late 19th century, and then with another development in the mid 20th century, archeologists with their shovels digging in the dirt found this pool on the north side of the Temple Mount that was not just one pool, with the four sides, but it was actually two pools with a fifth portico going right through the middle of it. So it's a portico with the four, the, the, a pool with the four porticos around it, but another extra one going through the middle. And they're really deep. I've visited them. They're like 40 feet deep at the deepest part. And we don't know exactly what the scene was in Jesus's day around these pools, but we can make some informed guesses, uh, some based on what we see in the text, but also what we know from history. So in all likelihood, this was a spring-fed pool. So there's a natural groundwater source coming into it from the depths, which would mean that this pool at various times would bubble up because water would be coming into it. It wasn't a constant stream, it was a more of an intermittent stream. And so when the waters were coming in, either through a naturally occurring stream or possibly through a human-made canal, there are a couple different theories on exactly how this thing came to be. At times, the pool would bubble. And as legend has it, the folks believed that when the pool bubbled, it was bubbling because an angel came down to stir the waters. And there was a popular myth that if you were the first one into the pool uh, to get to the bubbles first, the angel would meet the person there and heal them of their, of their illness or of their disability. Now, you might have noticed if you're paying attention to verse numbers that our passage goes verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, and there's no verse 4. It's not that verse four is missing, it's that there was a verse added in about the fifth century that we've realized was not original and so it's been removed, but removed in a way where you don't adjust all of the other verse numbers that follow. But if you were to go get your King James Bible that was published in 1611 and based on 12th century Byzantine manuscripts and not all the old stuff we have access to today, 
you would find verse four, which reads this. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now that's a fifth century person trying to help out in a context where the reader may not have known what the, what the scene was like around the pool of Bethesda. Uh, it's not original to John, but it certainly was part of the teaching around John as early as the fifth century. But the idea is just this. It's a pool, and people would gather there because they believed that the waters possessed healing powers. Now, also nearby at that point, at that part on the north side of the Temple Mount is the Antonia Fortress where the Roman guards were stationed. And the Roman guards had a custom also of setting aside, or the Romans, that is, had a custom of setting aside small pools and making these shrines uh, called Asclepia, which were temples built to Asclepius, who was a, a deity thought, or sort of a, a demigod type thought to be a, a, a healer. And there were pools near Bethesda, at least by the first century AD, that were Asclepia, where the Roman pagans would go and seek God's healing. So this was an area in Jerusalem that we know had all kinds of superstitious beliefs about healing waters. Some of them pagan, apparently here, some where Jewish people would also gather. And Jesus goes to this place and meets a man who had been a paraplegic for 38 years. And he's there by the edges of the pool. And so Jesus sees that he's lying there and he knows that he's been unable to walk for a very long time. And he approaches the man and he asks him this very simple question. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Imagine you're this guy and you've been a paraplegic for 38 years. And you're at the edge of the pool that is rumored to be, believed to be, full of healing water, where if you could just be the one who can get there, maybe, just maybe, you have a chance. And then along comes Jesus, and he just asks him this very simple question, do you want to be made well? How would you hear that? I mean, in some ways it's a ridiculous question, right? It's like, obviously, obviously, I'm here at the pool. Of course I want to be made well. But Jesus sees him. Jesus honors this man. Jesus isn't just simply assuming. But what's also interesting is the guy doesn't give him a straight answer. Do you want to be made well? Look what he says. He says, there's nobody to pick me up and take me when the water's stirred up. He doesn't say yes, he doesn't say no. He simply points to this other circumstance in his life that not only is he a paraplegic, not only has he been that way for 38 years, but there he is at the edge of this pool and other people can get there faster than he can, either because they're stronger than he is or because they have a helper a friend who will take them. And when the water bubbles up, they'll carry the friend and put him in the water. And here he is, this man who's been a paraplegic for 38 years, who has nobody to help him. And you can just imagine what would, what it would have been like to be there by that pool and watch over and over again as the stronger, the faster, 
or the less lonely made it in before you. But Jesus sees him and he heals him. And he says, take up your mat and walk. And the man was made well. But there's a problem because apparently it's illegal to do mat carrying on the Sabbath. And this is actually the point of our story. Because Jesus could have easily waited a few more hours until it was no longer Sabbath to have done this. This is not an emergency. This guy's not bleeding out. This guy's been this way for 38 years. It could wait another hour or two or three or whatever. But Jesus is making a point. He heals the man on the Sabbath and then he directs the man to take up his mat and walk. And as soon as he does, the religious leaders are there and they see him carrying his mat on Sabbath and they say, you're not allowed to do that. Who told you to do that? And he says, the guy who healed me told me to do that. They said, well, who's that? And he had no idea because Jesus had disappeared in the crowd. And so the religious leaders are agitated because this guy's doing it wrong. But the story doesn't end there because Jesus goes and finds this guy again, right? The man had been healed. He's carrying his mat, but then Jesus finds him. There's episode two to this, to this situation. And Jesus finds the man in the temple and engages him again. It's interesting that this man isn't looking for Jesus. Jesus goes looking for him, which is a little curious. We don't know what to make of this man. Do we like him? Like, is he a good character? Are we supposed to identify with him? Or it's actually kind of ambiguous in the text. I, uh, I don't know if any of you watched The Chosen, but I, I intentionally watched the episode about this, this story just to see like, what do they do with this? And you love the guy in that, like the way that they tell it in The Chosen, man, you're just so for this guy. It's a great episode. Some creative liberties for sure with the text, but it's a good episode. But when you watch that, you're like, man, we love this guy. But here, Jesus engages him. He doesn't give him a straight answer. And then when Jesus engages him again, he finds him in the temple and he says, okay, listen, stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you, which is a weird thing to say. But then what the guy does, we don't know if he turns from whatever his sin was or not, but he then sort of wraps out Jesus and, t and tattles on him. Oh, that's the guy that told me to take up my mat. And from that point forward, Jesus is persecuted by the religious leaders. This is a turning point. He gets outed by the guy whom he healed. Quick sidebar, because he brings up sin and he says, stop sinning so that nothing worse happens to you. And I just wanna make a very clear point because Jesus is very clear in other stories in a way that he's not clear here. And what Jesus is clear about in other stories is that our suffering, our illness, our injury, or things not going well in our lives, our circumstances, these are not evidences of, oh no, we messed up somehow. These are not evidences of God's displeasure with us or that somehow I messed my life up by sinning against God and now I'm under God's punishment. Jesus is very clear in other stories, like with the blind man, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him? Was it his parents? What was it? And he said, no, 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 that's not how this works. That's not how this works. And he heals him. 
But here, Jesus does engage this healed man around his sin, and we don't know what his sin is. And we have no idea what its relationship is to earlier episodes in his life, but we have no reason to think that it's in any way connected to the 38 years he spent as a paralytic. But here he is as being physically healed and he's in the temple and Jesus goes and finds him again. And he says, here's the real invitation. A healing that's not just physical, but a healing that is for your whole self. A new way, a new orientation to God and to the world, a new way of life. It's the same thing he says to other people as he meets them in mercy, go and sin no more, right? Come, follow me. Jesus is leading a new way of being human in the world. And there's this pivot point of meeting him, of meeting God in him of being renewed, being raised to life, being forgiven, being set aright, whatever it is in any individual story, there's this pivot point that begins with an encounter with Jesus and then leads to a whole new trajectory, a whole new way of life. One commentator that I read on John this week about this text, he's titled this episode, The Half Healing of a Hard to Like Man. Where as he reads it, he sees this man as half healed. He's physically healed and that's beautiful. And then he goes to the temple and Jesus engages him for the full healing. And we don't know where the story goes from there. But what we do know is this guy points out Jesus to the religious leaders and the story starts to go bad from there. Is he malicious? Is he naive? We just don't know. We don't know. So this character is a curious one. We don't know if we're supposed to like him or not, but his healing is a sign of new creation that John has woven into the fabric of his gospel so that we would see Jesus as the one in whom God's promises for the world are coming true. The verses following this one that we don't read, right after this, the man went away and told the leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. And then verse 16 through 18 say this, therefore the Jewish leaders started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is still working and I am also working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What John wants us to see about Jesus is that he's unique, that his connection with God is unique, that he is an answer to our longings. He is an answer to our needs. He is an answer to the world's weariness and weeping that is unparalleled. We think we need bubbly water and magic pools. We think we need pedigrees and portfolios. We think we need particular relationships. We think we need control. We think we need all the security blankets that we want to clothe ourselves in. And what John wants you and me to see, wherever you are tonight, whatever your pool is that you're hoping in, and whatever your don't care your mat rules are that keep you from missing God, John wants you and me to see the answer to your need 
the answer to your hope, the answer to your longing is Jesus. What is your need? Where are you afraid? Where are you experiencing the gigantic gap between the way things are and the way things ought to be? Where are you experiencing the pain of living in a broken world where we live away from God and we live against one another, where systems are broken and they hurt people and they prop other people up unjustly, where violence is always right around the corner and another story will be in the headlines tomorrow, where relationships break where we withhold ourselves from one another, where we lie to each other and we hide and we just keep one another at arm's length or we try to protect ourselves by keeping the wrong people out and the right people in as if that's possible. Where are you experiencing the gap? What's your need? What's your longing? What's your fear? Can you see Jesus as the one and only one who can meet us there with the actual hope that touches our actual situation. See, what we need most, similar to this man who's by the pool, isn't what we think we need most. The man had been unable to walk for 38 years, and that is absolutely tragic. Of course, that is a diminished life. And he experiences a restoration to wholeness, even as he's able to get his feet back underneath him. He's able to walk. It's a beautiful sign of healing. It's a beautiful sign of new creation, a beautiful sign of restoration. And yet it's a sign that's meant to point to something greater. The renewal of all things, the resurrection of life, the kind of newness, the kind of healing, the kind of permanence that not one of us is able to make, nor could even all of us together be able to make if we put our minds and our best efforts to it, because we simply are not God. You see, the Sabbath was given as a gift to human beings so that we would live as humans inside of our limited way of being finite creatures in the world, that we would depend upon God, that we would rest, that we would trust God for provision. And even as the Israelites practiced a Sabbath way of life and were very committed to ceasing and resting on the Sabbath, they knew God did not stop on the Sabbath. God did not cease. God did not slumber nor sleep. God did not cease to provide. He did not stop holding all things together. The Lord continued to work. Humans were called to rest. And as Jesus in John's gospel is doing these acts of new creation on the Sabbath, and he's saying, look, my father's still working and so am I. It is meant to be something that you and I see and go, whoa, he's different. He's different. There's something about him that transcends all the rules. There's something about him that transcends all the limits. There's something about him that colors outside the lines. There's something about him that is not able to be explained or controlled or tamed. And that is the Jesus who meets us tonight. He's available to you. He's here by his spirit. 
And he invites each of us in whatever situation we're in to recognize that he's come after us. You and I in our own figurative way are sitting by the pool, hoping, longing, feeling that wholeness is just out of reach, feeling like it's always been out of reach, experiencing the comparison game of they're faster, they have a helper, I don't. What's your pool? What is your pool? Where you put your hope, where you fix your gaze, where if only you could get to the middle of that thing, you'd be good. Jesus comes to meet you and me right there at the side of that false hope and says, come with me instead. That pool is not gonna actually do what you think it's gonna do, but I can do so much more. Tonight, let's not be the half-healed, hard-to-like man. But instead, would we open our hearts? Would we open our eyes to behold the glory of this only Son who comes to us in Jesus? And would you take that courageous step of surrendering to him? And instead of getting in the pool, would you take up your mat and follow him? Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for your love, for your relentless commitment to not let this world go to waste. You know each and every one of us, you see us, you know our stories, you know our darkness, you know our needs, you know our frailty, you know our false hopes, and yet you are so kind to meet us right where we are, to awaken us, to bring us back to life, to lead us away from the false hopes that we prop up and fix ourselves on instead of you. And you come with this gentle yet powerful invitation to follow you, to taste and see the goodness of God in you, to know something of eternal life even today as we receive you and rest upon you alone. So God, would you meet us here? Would you meet each and every one of us in this room tonight in a very personal, very powerful way? Because we need you. We need to be brought to life from death. We need to be restored. We need forgiveness. We need healing. We need hope and you promise all of that to us and you give all of that to us in Jesus. May it be true of us that we would know that hope 
and know that healing even now through Christ our Lord. Amen.